Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel and say, Thus says the Lord God, A great eagle with large wings and long pinions full of feathers of various colors came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to a land of trade He said it in a city of merchants. So this is a parable in the Old Testament. Yeah, Jesus told parables in the New Testament, but there are parables in the Old Testament as well. And so in this parable, we have this great eagle. And, uh, you know, if you think of the eagles or you think of the different birds that are uh, the species of birds, really an eagle is about the most or probably is the most majestic of all the birds that uh, are in the air that God has created. And uh, quite frequently in the Bible, uh, an eagle is associated with God in the Bible. So you, you get this picture, this just regal, all-powerful, all-majestic bird. And uh, it goes and it plucks this uh, topmost branch of a cedar in Lebanon. Now, uh, the cedars in Lebanon are actually quite famous throughout the Bible. Uh, the lumber from those cedars was used in the temple when David built the temple. Um, but in the Bible, when you read, when you come across the cedars, there's there are usually some adjectives that describe them. And in one place, they're called the mighty cedars. Um, in another place, they're called the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up. And so you get this majestic bird, and you also get this picture of this majestic tree, this tall tree that uh, it really, what it speaks of in the Bible is pride. And uh, so this, this eagle comes, it swoops down on this tallest of trees, and it takes the topmost branch and flies away, and it takes that branch to a city of traders and merchants. Verse 5, Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field, He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree, and it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth shoots." So in this parable, this this great eagle takes some seed that is in the land where the cedar was and plants it in the ground, and it says that he planted it in good, fertile ground. It was well watered and taken care of. Um, And even though it was a seed, it didn't grow tall like the cedar. Um, It grew low like a vine on the ground, but it was provided for. Um, And then as this parable progresses, the branches of this vine extend toward the cedar, or excuse me, toward the eagle, and you start thinking, well, what's that all about? Well, um, you know, I always think about the houseplants in your house. We have houseplants in our house, and you know, there are certain areas where the sun always shines, and you you watch the plants, and they tend to kind of grow towards the sunlight, and that's kind of the the picture that I think is described here. Verse 7 But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and stretched its branches toward him. 
from the garden terrace where it had been planted that he might water it. It was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic fine vine. Excuse me. So in this parable, there's this other great eagle, and it's described as having large wings and many feathers as well. But when you put the two eagles side by side and you compare them, although this is a great eagle, you get the sense that it's not as great as the other eagle. It's a lesser great eagle than the first one. So in this parable now, this low vine um, that was planted, and it was growing towards that great eagle that had planted it, now it turns and it starts growing towards this other great eagle even though that first eagle had taken care to provide what it needed to flourish. It's like it's forsaking that eagle and it's turning towards this other one. You go, that is bizarre. Well, God's going to tell us what this parable means. Verse 9, Say, thus says the Lord God, Will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of, uh, all of its spring leaves will wither, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. And so now God, through this parable um, that Ezekiel is, is, is sharing, he now poses a question about this low vine. Is it going to thrive now that it's turned away from the eagle that planted it? Um, and the answer is no, because of the treachery of that vine. That great eagle excuse me, is going to pull it up by its roots and it will be destroyed. Verse 11, and now we get the meaning. Moreover, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them. Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. So now we have this understanding now. This great eagle is none other than Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who was the world ruler at that time. And that topmost branch of the tall cedar tree was the king of Judah reigning in Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar came and took the king and the nobles, which, you know, you think about them, you think of pride, you know, the upper crust, the the high society of Jerusalem, took those into captivity. We know historically that that's exactly what did happen, as the parable says. Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah or Kaniah in the Bible. He was the son of Jehoiakim. He only reigned three months in Jerusalem, and he was carried off to Babylon, and he lived 37 more years in Babylon. He, he and all the nobles went with him. Verse 13, And he took the king's offspring and made a covenant with him and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be brought low and not lifted and not lift itself up, but that they should but that by keeping his covenant it might stand. And historically we know this. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim and the rest of the nobles to a land of traders and merchants, which was Babylon, and he made a relative of Jehoiachin king in his place. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar made a covenant with this new king. And the covenant was, if this king kept that covenant, he would prosper in Jerusalem, and basically he'd be left alone. Now, the purpose 
was that, as it says, the kingdom would be brought low. Um, and that's why you have the, the low-growing vine in the parable. Uh, the king of Jerusalem that was put in place by Nebuchadnezzar, he'd be answerable to Babylon. He'd be answerable to Nebuchadnezzar. He would be subject to, he would no longer be autonomous, but he would be below the king of Babylon. And so he'd be brought low. Uh, this king from history was Zedekiah. He was also known as Madaniah. He actually was Jehoiachin's uncle. And you go, well, wait, he was the seed of the king. What's this, the offspring? Well, I think the king that's being mentioned is King David, where all the, line, you know, all the, all the kings descended from him. And so he's the seed of the king of David. Now, it's interesting that Madaniah's name was changed. His name, Madaniah, actually means gift of God. And it was changed to Zedekiah, by Nebuchadnezzar, and that name means righteousness or justice of God. And I think, and I don't know why, it doesn't say why, but I think probably it was to remind Zedekiah that God was righteous and that Zedekiah needed to submit under God's discipline. You know, isn't that interesting when God sometimes uses unbelievers to remind us? of things that we should already know. I remember when I was not walking with the Lord and I was in the, you know, I had kind of given my, you know, I kind of people knew I was a Christian, but I was, I was, you know, messing with stuff I shouldn't have messed up, messed with. And I remember a guy saying, I thought Christians didn't do that. And I was like, oh, that conviction, you know, I was like, oh, yeah. And sometimes God does that in our lives. He allows believers to speak truth into us. And so this is probably what, what happened here with his name. Now, it's got to make you kind of wonder, why would Nebuchadnezzar make a covenant with the king of Jerusalem? You think about it. This guy is the world ruler. He's the, mo- he's the most majestic. He's, he's, you know, he's basically the most powerful person on the face of the earth at this time. And uh, he's going around swallowing up kingdoms in his path on his destination to world domination. Why would he make a covenant with the king of Judah and allow him to prosper as long as he, you know, was subject to him. There's one answer, and that is Daniel. Remember Daniel. Daniel was in the first wave of captives that went into captivity and exile in Babylon. And he was a young man at the time. And you guys, if you've been in Sunday school or if you've read the book of Daniel, you know the story. How as a young man he was faithful to God and he was obedient to God. And he didn't, he didn't follow the ways of the Babylonians. He followed God and, and his life was a testimony. And God used him in a mighty way there in Babylon. And he rose to fame and power in Babylon, and he ended up being a friend and a confidant to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's uncompromising faithfulness to the Lord allowed God to use Daniel in a way. Not only did God do something mighty in Daniel's life, but God used Daniel's life, his, his obedience, in a much more far-reaching ramification far beyond Daniel himself. It probably, and this the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I think it probably influenced Nebuchadnezzar's kindness and favor toward Judah and Jerusalem because of his love for Daniel. There's another interesting ramification that's even further than that. Remember when Jesus Christ was born, and then a little later on, he's a little bit older, and the rem, remember the Magi that came, the wise men that came from the east? Uh, they had seen the star of the Messiah, and they came to see Christ the Savior. You know where those guys were from? They were from Babylon. 
They were Chaldeans. They were astronomers who were watching the signs, the signs in the sky. Um, how did they ever learn about the Messiah in Babylon? How did they even know about the Messiah and know about his sign in the heavens and then go to visit the king because of Daniel again? The life that Daniel lived had far-reaching ramifications. The life that you and I live today, you're in obedience to the Lord and the Lord's using your life. You don't know how God's going to use it in ramifications far beyond your own life. Um, Daniel happened to be appointed head over the astronomers in Babylon. And so, it, you know, he influenced those people in a way. Probably told them about the Bible and, and shared, you know, things about about the God of, of, of Israel with them. And so um, fascinating to me when you start putting all these things together. Continuing back with uh, Ezekiel 17, verse 15. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? And again, you go back to the history books. You go back to the, to the history of the kings and the chronicles. Zedekiah reigned 11 years, and the Bible just says that he was a wicked king. Um, he later on revolted against Babylon, and he tried to align politically with the other great eagle. And the other great eagle was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so he broke the covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. And even when he was doing that, and even before he did that, God had sent Jeremiah, the prophet, to Zedekiah, warning him, don't rebel from the king. The message from God was, I've put you in this place. I want you to submit. Uh, you'll be taken care of as long as you submit. Don't rebel. And uh, Zedekiah ignored Jeremiah's warning, or God's warning through Jeremiah. And the fact was that Egypt was unable to deliver Judah from Babylon, because Egypt itself became dominated by Babylon later on. Verse 16, As I live, says the Lord God, surely in this place where the king who dwells, uh, excuse me, where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh his mighty army with his mighty army and great company, do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build up a wall to cut off many persons. Since he despised the oath by, by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. Verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he committed against me. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword, and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. This is fascinating to me. Because even though God used a foreign ruler who probably was not a, a believer in Jehovah, um, you know, he was influenced by Daniel, but we don't know anything about at this point um, where he was with his heart. Um, God used him to make this covenant, this oath, and yet in reality, it was God's covenant with Zedekiah that Zedekiah broke. 
God had put him in that position and he broke that covenant. And God says, you're breaking my covenant. I'm the one that set that up. Yeah, through Nebuchadnezzar, but I'm the one that did this. And so I am going to, as a result, it was God who would entrap Zedekiah and God would punish him for his wickedness. And he'd use Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish that. That all came true in the life of Zedekiah. Zedekiah at one time, Babylon was around, they had built a siege around Jerusalem. He and his troops tried to escape Jerusalem under the cover of darkness, and they got away from the city, but he ended up getting caught. And his sons and his noblemen who were with him were killed before his eyes. And then his soldiers that were with him, they scattered. Well, they were eventually caught and killed as well. After um, Nebuchadnezzar had killed his sons and his, and his uh, noblemen in front of him, he gouged out Zedekiah's eyes and brought him to Babylon where Zedekiah died. Pretty sad story, but he had ignored God's warning. Now, is there any application for you and I in this? Um, you know, I was thinking about that. And I think, at least the application that I saw in here, there are times when God allows you and I to endure difficult circumstances. And there's times where we have to submit under people who are unrighteous and not God-fearing at all. And God wants us in that place. We don't maybe not know the answer, but He has a purpose in all of it. And He wants us to submit under that situation, under that trial. Why? Because He wants to produce some fruit in us. And He wants us to just trust Him and abide in that situation. And, you know, if you're like me, when I get into a difficult situation, when I get into a trial, my first thing is to pray and to try to get out from underneath it. You know, whatever, however I can get out from underneath that difficult circumstance, because nobody wants to be in an uncomfortable place. You know, nobody wants to be in a hard situation, in a, in a, in a humbling situation. But when we try to get out from those circumstances, sometimes we can be actually wrestling with God and His will for us. And we can also be postponing that work that he's trying to accomplish in your and my life when we do those things. Verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth bows and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. You know, when you think about the lofty and proud line of the kings descended from David, now all of a sudden they're seemingly cut off. The last king, Zedekiah, he's, you know, he's brought out into, uh, he's killed, or excuse me, he dies in Babylon. And, and it seems like all hope is cut off for the line of, of David, and, and it's been brought low. It's no longer prideful and no longer prominent. And just when it seemed that all hope of the line of David has dashed, God's promise here to take a tender and lowly branch and plant it. And that branch would grow tall and majestic, and all other trees would be dwarfed by it. What's he speaking about? 
He's speaking about the coming and the promise of the Messiah. Listen to Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So this beautiful promise, even in the midst of this punishment and this, this really, you know, an awful period, we have this promise of hope from God. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, speaking about the coming Messiah, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just speaking about the humble beginning, the humble uh, life that Jesus lived, and yet God used him to provide salvation for each and every one of us here by dying on the cross for our sins and taking our iniquity, and it was laid upon him. Beautiful promise at the end of this chapter. I'm going to move into chapter 18 now. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? Now, the context of this, Ezekiel, you'll recall, as we've kind of had an introduction with Ezekiel, he had been taken as captive to Babylon along with Jehoiachin in that second wave of of exiles that went. The first wave was was, uh, Daniel and some other young men. They went into Babylon a little bit later on. Then Jehoiachin and Ezekiel and and some other nobles and stuff, they went into Babylon uh, in the second of three. There was three phases to the Babylonian exile. Um, the Jews in exile had this proverb, and uh, this proverb, I mean, we wouldn't use a proverb like this, kind of like we don't know what it means. Well, basically, what it means is they were blaming their current predicament because of their father's sin. In other words, it's kind of a self-righteous thing. You know, I'm suffering here because of what someone else did. I'm paying the price for someone else's faults. You know, today we live in a society of victims. (laughs) Isn't it true? No one wants to take the blame for their own predicament. It's so it's so convenient to to shift our blame onto someone else. And you know, of course, that's really just our fallen nature, basically, because it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam blamed Eve when he when God said, "Why have you done this?" He said, "Well, it's the woman you gave me, God. It's your fault. You gave me the woman. She deceived me." Uh, And And then Eve, God turned to Eve, and of course Eve blamed the serpent for deceiving her. You know, unfortunately, that hasn't left from the church as well. Um, The church hasn't escaped from that mentality. Um, I've recently been um, 
interacting with a person that has gotten caught up in this, and I'm going to use I don't I'm going to use it for lack of a better word ministry, but they deal with generational curses. And they say, you know, if you're struggling with this area in your life, it's because of some sin that your ancestors did. And, and you know, it, boy, I can feel pretty good about myself if I can say, well, what's going on in my life isn't my fault. It's because of someone else did it. It's the same thing here. What does God have to say about this? Look at verse 3. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. You know, we are each responsible to God for the life we live. Verse 5. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. Notice what God expects from his people. I mean, not only does he expect his people to obey his commands, not only does he expect his people to not be idolaters, to only worship him and him alone, but he expects his people to treat others in a loving way and not to sin against them either. God cares about how you and I interact with people. Verse 10. Now, there's, there's this, this just man, right? Verse 10. If he begets, so the, the just man, if he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and the needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifting his eyes to the idols or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. So now we have this just man who has a son, and his son doesn't walk in the ways of his just father, but is unjust and unrighteous. That wicked son is not going to live because of his righteous father. It's going to have no bearing on him. He's responsible for his own life, for his own soul. Verse 14, if, however, he begets a son. So, okay, this is like the third generation, right? You have the, the just man, and then you have his wicked son. Now, if that wicked son has a son, it says, if, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but, not, but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains nor lifted his eyes to the idols, uh, of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. 
So now basically we have three generations represented here. First, we have the righteous man before God who lives. Second, he has a son who is wicked, who, who dies in his sin. That wicked son in turn has a son who sees all the wickedness that his father does and doesn't commit the sins of his father, and that righteous son will live. A generational curses. You know, I don't, I don't really know the motive behind that ministry. Again, I, I don't really think it's a ministry, but, you know, they call it a ministry. I don't know the motivation, but I can tell you theologically it's off. It's not, it's not biblical. And I think, it's, I think it's also enslaves people. And, uh, and I think it does great damage. And I think this scripture, and there's a lot of other scriptures, um, because I was dealing with an individual that was getting caught up in that, and I I went to this website from this from this ministry, and I basically took their statement of faith, and I took the Bible out, and I just kind of laid them side by side, and I I gave this person a 12 page thing saying this is what they're saying, this is what the Bible says, and uh, unfortunately that person continued to uh, to go in that direction, so. Verse 18, as for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, violence, excuse me, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. For each one of us here, we are all children of sinful parents. And isn't it a comfort to know that we're not cursed for their sinfulness? To me, that's a comfort. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that new support group here in Rochester. I joined it not too long ago. It's ACSP, Adult Children of Sinful Parents. You can join the group. They're really, you know, they, they're a support group. You know, everybody see them, you know, and they can encourage you in that. You know, there's another side to that, too. As a parent of sinful children, <laughs> isn't it a comfort to know that you know, we are commanded in, Bible, in the Bible to raise our children in the fear of the Lord. But ultimately, they are responsible for the choices they make. And, uh, boy, I tell you, when I understood that, because I didn't understand that all the time as a parent, but when I got to that point where I understood that, you know, yeah, I, I did everything I could, and if my children chose to not walk with the Lord, or they chose to, to do their, you know, go the way of the world or whatever, it wasn't my burden. I mean, I, believe me, I was burdened. But it was like, you know what? They've made their choice. I've done what I can. They are responsible for God. Of course, then you get on your knees and you start praying for them all the time because you want them to, to repent. But, but it, for me, it's, it was freeing. Because, you know, as a parent sometimes, and there's a few here that are younger, you know, you have young kids, and when your kids grow older and they start getting independent, and some of them are eventually... Probably, hopefully not, but some of them will rebel at some point. And uh, boy, I tell you, it can really make a make a parent feel like I'm a failure, you know. Um, but if you've if you've been obedient to just raise up your kids in the fear of the Lord, and you've lived a life that's you know you're, you haven't been a hypocrite, you've been you've lived a life faithfully in front of them, not just told them things, but they can see it in your actions. And, you know, God's going to take care of them. God's going to do a work in their lives. You can just trust that. Um, but you're free from that responsibility. 
verse 21. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. I love that. There's, there's grace there. There's mercy there. You know, if a wicked person turns from their sins, God gives them a second chance. I don't know how many chances God's given you. He's given me multiple chances to turn my life back around. And I praise God for that. And sometimes I'm amazed. I'm like, God, why, why are you forgiving me again? I don't deserve it. And the answer is, he, you know, if he was speaking to me audibly, he'd say, you're right. You don't deserve it. But that's what grace is. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Verse 22, none of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Again, you know, that's another verse, man. Write that down, memorize it, make a note of it. That is so freeing. I love Psalm 103, verse 12. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know, if you've done something terrible in your life and you're carrying around guilt and shame, you repent of your sins and you turn to Jesus Christ, man, he forgets it. He, he doesn't remember it. And it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Notice, this is again in Psalm 103, notice that he didn't say, as far as the north is from the south. That's as far as I've removed your transgressions from me. Because, you know, if you travel north, eventually... You're going to travel south. North and south meet. They meet at the poles on the planet. But if you go east and west, they never meet. You start heading east, you're always heading east. You go west, you're always heading west. East and west will never meet. And that's a picture of of our sins that God has removed from us. You're never going to meet your sins again. Beautiful picture of God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Verse 23. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should live, turn from his ways? Excuse me, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? You know, a lot of people today view God as this cosmic cop. You know, he's hiding behind, you know, a cloud with his radar sin detector, and, you know, he's just waiting for someone to come by sinning and bust him and send him to hell. I mean, that's the picture that God, people have of God. And, you know, you might share your gospel with someone and say, what kind of a living God would send, or what kind of a loving God would send people to hell? And the answer is, sin brings death, and the wages of sin is death. And we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We have all earned our wages, and that wages is death. It isn't that God sends us to sin, it sends us to hell. We've earned that. But it's a loving God who also sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and to take you in my punishment for our own sin, who has provided a way for people to escape hell and to live with him forever. That's a loving God who's willing to do that for us. Verse 24. But when a righteous man turns away, here's another but though, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. You know, there's one question that I've been asked 
by people, not, not necessarily any of you here, but we've had visitors come. And, you know, they come from different backgrounds. They hear about our church. And sometimes they kind of have this litmus questions that they ask. And, and one of them that I've been asked, uh, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And, uh, you know, that's a tough one for me anyways. It's a tough one. Um, I don't think anyone has to fear losing our salvation. I don't think you have to fear losing your salvation. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. However, we have passages like this one. We have John 15 where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and and every branch that abides in me bears fruit. And if you don't abide in me and you don't bear fruit, you're a branch that is with will be withered and cast out and burned up. And you have that passage and go, and then you have uh, Hebrews 6 that talks about, you know, if we don't progress in our faith. Um, and so sometimes that's a tough thing for me to answer. Recently, that has really, really hit home for me. Um, some of you, I know because you know the same person, um, we had a, a fellow here that used to be a part of our fellowship and uh, was involved in ministry and, and went away and, and uh, um, was involved in ministry where he went and uh, keeping relationship with him. And uh, recently, he's pretty much publicly announced that he's rejected Jesus Christ. He doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, now he uh, believes he's kind of following this kind of a, some kind of a form of Judaism. And, uh, and so he's basically verbally, he's, it's out on Facebook. I mean, he's basically, I reject the Jesus. You know, I mean, he hasn't said it in those words, but basically he has. And uh, first question that someone might say was, well, maybe he was never saved. And I've had that conversation with him. And he says up and down, yeah, I was saved. Um, only God knows his heart. But, you know, as a pastor, if a person rejects Jesus Christ with their mouth or they deny Jesus Christ by their fruit, in other words, their fruit is like that, you know, you're not living like a Christian. Um, it's hard for me as a pastor in good conscience to say, you know, that's okay. As long as you've prayed the sinner's prayer, man, once saved, always saved. It's hard for me to say that to someone. I have to warn them because the Bible says God's not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now, I'm not in a theological camp, the other side of that, that says you have to get born again and again and again and again, you know, where people every week are coming forward to receive Christ again. I, I, don't, I don't follow that either. I don't, I don't believe that as well. Um, but I'm also not in the camp that says as long as you've prayed the sinner's prayer, uh, you're in. You know, you've got your fire insurance your policy in hand, you can go live any sinful way you want and still be in. I can't say that in good conscience as a pastor because I think that gives people false assurance. Now, if you're you know, seeking to, to live for the Lord and you're seeking to follow Him, and yeah, you know, we all fall into sin, we all fall into temptations and stuff, you don't have to fear that you're going to lose your salvation. You don't have to fear that. Um. But if you're living a life totally in rebellion against God, I have to give you the warning, man. God's not mocked. He's not mocked. People will reap what they sow. So I take a passage like this and the passage of John 15 and Hebrews 6. I take them at face value. It's a warning that God says, you know, I'm not mocked. Because we serve a holy God. So am I once saved, always saved? I... I 
I don't know. <laughs> I'm kind of like smack dab in the middle of that. So, Verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his, unright- from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he does that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair, and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one of you according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. You understand the heart of God there? You know, turn from your sins, not because, you know, he says, because sin will be your ruin. It's not God that kills people and sends them to hell. He recognizes that sin ruins people. And he says, turn from it because it's going to ruin your life. It's going to lead to death. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed. And get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. How is a person saved from their sin? Well, the Bible pretty much plainly tells us by confessing and repenting. And repenting really is just turning away from our sin and turning to Jesus Christ, putting our trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for our sins and then rose up again on the third day. Listen to Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all of this to all by raising him from the dead. You know, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. There was a time where that just completely, it just blew me away when I really started thinking about, you know, why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so important? Well, of course, if you're at a funeral, I mean, it's, it's our hope, right, as Christians, that one day we'll rise again, too. I mean, that's, that's a, it's, a, it's a real hope. It's a truth that you and I can, can stand on in a time of, of great uh, uh, sadness and sorrow over the loss of a loved one. But I think there's another reason why Jesus rose from the dead. You know, Jesus was that perfect sacrifice for sin. And if he had been not a perfect sacrifice, he would have still been in the grave. Because he would have died, in, in his, he would have died for his mm-hmm. sins. But because he was that perfect substitute for your and my sin, God the Father received his sacrifice and accepted it. And that's why he rose again from the dead. And, and it just blew me away when I started thinking about that. Finally, Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, folks. Um, 
basically, you know, if, if you decide to live a life apart from Christ and you decide to live a life, uh, you know, in sin, um, I got to tell you, watch out. God's not mocked. But if you and I, and again, I, I love the freedom of this because, you know, if a person turns from their wickedness, and the Bible says we're all sinners, right? We've, we all deserve death. We're, we're already beyond that point of saying, well, if I do something good, well, you know, we've, we've blown it already. We were born in sin. And, and so we are already sentenced to death just by the virtue of our nature. However, because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, you know, we have that freedom, that opportunity to turn from our sins. And even as believers, that's why, you know, whenever you get a Bible, always go to 1 John 1, 9, make sure it's in there. You know, because that one is like the verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, you know, as believers, you know, if we turn from our sin, Jesus Christ forgives us. And I don't know how many times I've had to go back to that verse and claim that verse and stand on that verse and cry that verse. Please forgive me. And Jesus forgives and he forgets. And, it, and he removes those sins from us. To me, you know, you can look at this and go, well, this is really hard stuff here. To me, it's the most freeing thing. The fact that God loves us so much that he provided a way that we don't have to. We don't have to die in our sins. And that's why he says there, turn and live.